I'm Maris Kreisman, and this is the Maris Review. I am, I've been waiting for a long time to be sitting across from Brandon Taylor. He is the senior editor of Electric Literature's Recommended Reading and a staff writer at LitHub, and his debut novel is called Real Life. Welcome! Thanks for having me. It's so, I mean, so I just feel like we've spoken on Twitter so many different times um, about various literary things. Yeah, I mean, I can't believe, I think this is the second time we're sort of yeah, meeting face-to-face. Like IRL, yeah. I know, it's happening. It's really fun. Um, I'm going to start with like a, a softball question. Mm, okay. Brandon, what is real life? <laughs> <laughs> um... Oof. In in the context of the book, how about that? Um, in the context of the book, I think that real life refers to like the set of you know the set of factors that that isn't grad school essentially. Mm-hmm. Like it's like having a real job and yep. having like benefits and health insurance, but also being responsible for yourself in a way that academia kind of precludes in a way because when you're you're in grad school you're still a student and so your educational experience is more or less curated for you right um and you don't really have to worry about what's coming next Um, oh gosh you know um and and so like a real life is a life in which you do have to worry constantly about what's coming around the bend, <laughs> yeah. and you don't have this this fail safe of you know advisors telling you which conferences to go to right. etc. And and there's also a great passage in the book which I think about a lot because I I think I'm a snob but your your main character looks around at the other people in this midwestern town and he thinks oh they're the normal ones they're all happy they don't aspire to anything they're they're not constantly um in a state of panic or dread and um i like to tell myself that about like people i went to high school with yeah i think that it's comforting when you're sort of um dangling over the chasm of what is this life that I have chosen for myself? Yeah. Look at all those people who like are locked in cur- to careers and whose lives have a mortgage. You know, like people whose lives more or less align with like these heteronormative, mm-hmm. like late capitalist <laughs> ideals of like what an adult life should look like. Absolutely. Um, and so, like, I too uh, think about that a lot when I think about you know not just people I went to high school with, but like my cousins or right. family members or or dear friends or even people who left academia and like went to law school and now are oh, sort yeah. of lawyers um, are real they're like real people it's <laughs> really astounding you wrote a gorgeous essay for buzzfeed right about um your own scientific background um and and how you often get asked the question how has being a scientist affected your writing <laughs> um but i do see in the book that there there are many parallels that could be drawn. So talk about that, please. Yeah, I mean, this is a question that I get quite a bit, you know, like, how do, how, do, how are science and writing, how do they inform each other in my work? And, and the only thing that I can really say to that is that, you know, I, the way that I see the world is like, deeply analytical mm-hmm. um but it's that analytical lens that allows me to access mystery and and beauty and some of the most creative people i know are these scientists who think in sort of like six dimensions right. at once about you know things as 
niche as like protein folding um, or people who can see beauty and, and symmetric morphogenic fields. Like that's something that I find. I don't know what that means, but I, it sounds beautiful. <laughs> I mean, like they're things to me that feel just like incredibly aesthetically satisfying. Like yeah. it makes a kind of deep rhythmic sense to me. And, and I can't separate those two things out. Like I can't stop being a person who notices things and thinks in a systemic way. Um, but at the same time, I can't, you know, I can't not see the poetry in in science. And so I think that there are these two mechanisms by which, like, humans access meaning and beauty mm. in the world. And um, they they just, yeah, they make perfect sense to me. And and I know that some people are like, I don't have a science brain or, like, a <laughs> right. or whatever. And then there are a lot of scientists who are like, I don't like all that flowery stuff. And and to, you know, both kinds of people, I would just say that, like, you know, you have more in you than you think you do. And and it's not quite so scary. I think that we're all capable of accessing meaning in different ways. But these things have much more in common than we like to believe. In your descriptions of lab work um, and, and just the, the real nitty gritty, <laughs> like mundane, like, what the hell am I doing? I mean, that perfectly describes looking at a blank page. <laughs> like, Totally. I mean, writing writing a book and doing an experiment are basically the same thing. Like, if you <laughs> consider it, like, there are two enterprises in which you set out not really knowing what the answer is going to be. You dedicate years and years of your life designing, you know, ever more esoteric, like, yes. lines of inquiry. And at the end of it, you have no idea if it will succeed or fail. And if it fails, you have no way of knowing if like it failed because, because it, of you or, or yeah. be, any other reason. And you also don't know if it did fail. Like, like it's just, <laughs> and, and so like that is the creative process, which yeah. to me, like that is the nature of any creative process, be it scientific or, mm-hmm. you know, writing. Great risk. I mean, it's all risk. Yeah. Great rewards. <laughs> Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. Um, this is a very internal novel. And yet there are some amazing scenes with a whole bunch of people in them. Uh, Tell me about that. Yeah. When I set out to write this novel, I made a bunch of lists about things I wanted to put in it. Mm -hmm. Um, And on this list, you know, were things like cardigans and and tennis and lake stuff. But sort of right near the top of that list was dinner parties. And I, because I love dinner parties, they're, they're one of, you know, literature's great, like, locked rooms is putting a bunch of people in a dinner party, subjecting them to the weird mores we have around gatherings and mealtimes and just, like, locking them in there and not letting them escape. Yeah. Um, and there's no more fraught space than a grad student potluck. <laughs> like, there's, you know, because everyone has, you know, competing agendas and everyone has, like, different things going on. And it's just, like, such a a really interesting crucible to sort of observe this particular group of people in a very particular setting. And so I love scenes that draw out all the kind of clashing agendas at play in a friend group. Like a small war brewing in that dinner scene. I think one of the characters uh, says something like, you want me to come to gay, what is it, gay Armageddon? (laughs) (laughs) Um, and it, I mean, it kind of is. It does sort of break out. I mean, it's it's 
very uncomfortable and wonderful. Yeah, I mean, but then there are all these other, I mean, the novel opens with like a, a scene with like quite a lot of characters. And that was one of the things that my editor had a bit of, my editor and I had a bit of a discussion about was whether or not, you know, you could sort of open the novel with that many names <laughs> flung at the the reader. And my impression anyway, was that they don't, matter that much Mm. because Wallace is himself and alone no matter who he's with. Yeah, I think that it, to me, it works because, you know, Wallace is the kind of grounding observational intelligence. Mm-hmm. And it's it's okay because he's looking at all of them and situating all of them and contextualizing them. And yes. so um, one of the great things about, I mean, one of the great difficulties of having a scene with a lot of characters is that you've got to like balance them all. Right. Um, but by sort of localizing everything to Wallace, you get to kind of cheat that difficulty a little yes. bit. Yeah. And he comes to all of these people with certainly some self-awareness, but more of of a need to have self-defense is, is important. Yeah. Vital. Yeah. I mean, he's, he goes because, you know, he's asked by a friend to go and he wants to be a good friend, but he also, you know, he agrees to it and then he gets there and he's like, oh, this was a mistake. And I, <laughs> and I think anyone who's agreed to go to a social gathering only to arrive and immediately regret it can relate to that sentiment. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and part of that regret almost immediately is that he he has baggage with each of these characters right. in this friend group. Like, he has very particular baggage with each of them. And it's, like, the particular arrangement of all of that intense, yes. um, you know, intense relationship, interpersonal drama, drama, like, causes, like, yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult for him to be in that space, and yet he finds himself unable to leave. Yeah, and I, I mean, there are, I like that there are levels of the characters who are well-meaning and and fucking up versus, like, actual evil villains who are, like, just, like, terrible. Like, I'm thinking particularly of Roman at the dinner party, but also Dana, the, the lab mate. Tell me about white people being on a spectrum. <laughs> um, it's interesting. One time a, a very well-meaning white person in Madison, Wisconsin told me, he said, well, like all racism isn't the same, right? Like you, like you'd rather sit next to like a racist grandma than like a clan member. Right. And I, <laughs> and I kind of looked at him and I was like, the very fact that you can formalize this question and put it to me <laughs> is like the bottom of a problem that you can't even begin to conceive of. Um, but I think that there is a kind of truth in it. I do think that there's something to that idea that like all racial costs aren't at the same volume, but at their at their heart, they they contain much of the same material, which is a kind of fundamental inability to see other as like equal and and mm-hmm. humane. Um, and and so like there's Dana who who says some really awful things to Wallace. Um, and and like writing that character is a, a challenge because I don't 
I didn't want to write really simple, flat characters who just go around being bad and being awful. Um, I wanted the characters, even when they say awful things, I wanted to give them the full benefit of the doubt mm-hmm. and think, like, you really believe that? Okay, so, like, how did you get to that point? And, like, where is this coming from? Mm-hmm. And for the Dana character, it's coming from a place of intense insecurity. Yes. And it's coming from a place of just, like, feeling doubted and undercut all of the time. And that's something that Wallace... Uh, the main character certainly relates to. Yes. And there's a moment of like yes. empathy and he's like, oh, I feel sorry for you. And then the novel kind of takes that moment and turns it on its head and questions the yes. impulse to extend empathy to people who are accosting you. <laughs> um, and then there's Roman who at the dinner party also says something really, really awful to the main character. And there is no empathy extended there because that accost is coming from someone who he just does not understand. Um, But I think with all of the characters in the book, they all do harm and are harmed by each other. You know, even Wallace, who who considers himself, like, aggrieved by all of these people. Of course. He also perpetrates harm. Um, And that was just part of, like, trying to write a book full of, like, real flawed people. Mm -hmm. Because, like, that to me as a reader is much more interesting. Like, it's much more interesting to think about a character who says something really bad, but they have, like, a a really human reason for doing it. And that, uh, I think, pushes the idea of empathy and when we should have it and (laughs) how we should use it or not. Yeah, I mean, I think that we live in an age that kind of fetishizes the idea of empathy. And I think that 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 fetishization extends from like, a really reasonable like Mm -hmm. impulse to be like, you know, I'm not you, but I can understand where you're coming from. And like, that's certainly like a value that we should aspire to as humans. (laughs) Right. But there's something about it being made into a tool to silence people Mm -hmm. or to sort of downplay people's really like valid responses to oppression or like microaggressions or costs. And what you begin to to see, I think, is that empathy is really this like larger stratagem deployed by like the overculture to Mm -hmm. like silence oppressed peoples. Um, Empathy is like a social engineering tool in in some ways. And, And so like I wanted, I think, the book to complicate the idea of empathy and that empathetic impulse, not to sort of say that empathy is bad, but that there are all kinds of motivating factors, sometimes insidious ones that prompt us to extend empathy to certain people in certain instances. Tell me about tennis. (laughs) (laughs) I love tennis. It is my favorite sport. I can tell. I love it so much. Um, uh, my friends and I taught ourselves to play in undergrad um, on these like really terrible courts at our university. And that was in Alabama. Mm-hmm, in Alabama. And we taught each other uh, from YouTube videos. And it was great. It was wonderful. I, I, I love tennis. I think From it, YouTube videos? Mm-hmm, yeah. Taught myself backhands from YouTube. Um, yeah, I love tennis. I think it's one of those sports where it's like you and another person and you're going at it. And mm-hmm. it's like your very idiosyncratic set of skills versus their very particular set of skills. And you're just like trying to nudge ahead a little bit at a time. Almost uh, sounds like it would make for a great scene in a novel. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I knew that I wanted 
tennis to be like a big moment in the book. And so when it was, I was like, oh, I need something to happen here. And I was like, ah, yes. (laughs) Use this device. Tennis interlude. Um, (laughs) And it's just like such a great place to kind of literalize an argument or to literalize a lot of the metaphors of the book, like this really fraught encounter between two friends who have a lot going on. All of the freighted, like psychosexual tension between them and (laughs) Yeah, I love tennis. It's like a perf it's a perfect metaphor for so many things. Yeah, and 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 it's a, a weird kind of intimacy too that mm. that you are familiar with with your opponent's flaws and faults and weaknesses. Yeah, I mean there's there's some moments, I mean it's almost an unbearable intimacy at times, you know. I had a really really good friend in Madison who we played tennis like every weekend. And there were some, I mean, there's something about like double faulting like three times in a row in front of someone and going love 40 down and them seeing that and just like knowing that (laughs) this is the bad part of your game and you just cannot get it together. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's the moment when you're like the most vulnerable. I mean, there's just like something about physically being so open and exposed, um, like you're maybe never as exposed as you are in a tennis match. <laughs> Ooh, I hadn't considered that. Even um, dissecting worms, you're not dissecting, uh, but working with worms in a yeah. lab. I dissected many worms. I mean, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. That's a thing, yeah. That's a, okay. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about nature um, and how your descriptions of it influence the book. I, I mean, there's... There's a bird on the cover. You mm. have the most – there's really beautiful imagery um, involving the bird, Wallace, and and Miller. Yeah. I mean, it's – maybe being from the South, I don't know, but I, I'm obsessed with weather. And I mean, it's not just being from the South. I also grew up on a farm, so, like, weather was, like, very important um, in my life. And so when I write, the weather always finds its way in mm. because it's – there's something about growing up in a rural situation where you always have to be aware of, like, what's coming. Sure. Um, and so, like, weather definitely finds its way into the book. And in some ways, I mean, the f- the sort of central part of the book, I couldn't write that that section until I had the line, something like, there were storms all the time. And mm-hmm. that was the first line I had for that section. And that was the line that unlocked it for me. And, and I think part of that is because it unlocks it for Wallace as a as a character, because it's like a scene where he like makes a great revelation. And, and so like whether, whether perhaps like tennis is just like one of, one of those like deeply, like one of those deeply rooted metaphors for me. <laughs> um, I think about it all the time and like birds, I didn't realize there was so much bird imagery into the book until I saw the cover for the first time. <laughs> and I was like, Oh wow. There's so I'm many. I'm an ornithologist. So many birds in this book. <laughs> and I mean, part of that is like, I'm deeply terrified of birds, but I find them. <laughs> like really interesting because they're sort of free to move in any dimension they want. And and Madison, Wisconsin is like full of birds. And that's where I was living when I was writing this book. And in some ways I had never seen so many birds in my life, like all different kinds. And so like I, I, I found myself like watching them and thinking about them 
this like incredibly vulnerable but resilient like species of thing like living in these great quantities but with great diversity in this like really concentrated region and like how strange they were to see them kind of pecking at the food at the terrace and then like going home to roost in the trees like it was like they were domesticated in 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 some ways and so yeah i think about birds perhaps too much some I, might say i love it i mean i i also it's it's such a a weirdly comforting idea that perhaps they're above us observing us and judging us yeah i mean makes us feel slightly more important i mean i like i like <laughs> to think i mean when I was in the um, Union Station in D.C. this morning, there was a literal pigeon just, like, hanging out, sitting on the railing for the priority boarding for the <laughs> for the train. And it just, like, sat there for, like, an hour, just, like, watching the people who were sitting in the seating area, um, waiting for the boarding call. And this pigeon just, like, was sitting there watching them. And it seemed so bored. He <laughs> was just like, this is it. Like, they're so tired of us. <laughs> I saw a pigeon on the subway recently, which oh. was like a whole other experience. Oh, my God. Because then you just like look at it and think, like, please don't try to fly. I don't know if I can handle that. Oh, my. There's something really scary about birds. For me, like birds inside is like a big no-no. Oh, it's, it's, I like, mean, it's a big taboo for me. <laughs> um, you talked a, a little bit about the middle section of, of your novel, and it, it reminded me so much of – what Belongs to You mm. by your friend Garth Greenwell. Tell me about that. Yeah, when it came time to, I mean, setting out to write the book, I knew a few things about it. I knew that the first and final sections would be a kind of Rashomon, like weird mm-hmm. sliding doorsy thing. And I knew that the exact middle of the book would contain like a like a wild kind of hyper Faulknerian like register break from the rest of the book. And so when it came time to do it, you know, I mean, I wrote the book in five weeks, but two of those weeks were not being able to write the middle section. Wait, what? Yeah. You wrote the book in five weeks? Yeah, I wrote it in five weeks. Um, But like two of those weeks, I just was catatonic and like unable to write the middle section because it was like very intense. And when I got to that middle section, I'm like, I'm going to do a green well and I'm going to make a block paragraph. And so (laughs) like that mode of like the sort of emotionally dense, like weird odyssey you take into the past with the character, um, like that was... directly modeled on that really heartbreaking section of what belongs to you except like i thought i was going to be able to do it for 43 pages and like i did not i (laughs) i I petered out uh much earlier than garth did as a reader it's overwhelming to be in that section and i'm sure it 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 feels like almost like a beautiful, beautiful vomit of of Wallace's. Um, he does vomit often in the book too, but yeah, <laughs> but like almost like a purging of the soul, and and that gets hard after twenty five pages or so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was difficult to inhabit, and and I, I and i considered sort of going back and breaking it up and and parsing it out but i and making it easier to flow but that idea of making it easier seemed antithetical to the structure of of the book like i, I thought okay if it's going to be all cons- contained here if it's all going to be 
like restricted to this section, then it should be difficult. It's not easy. Right. Like it's not yeah. a pleasant stroll down memory no. lane, you know? There's like no it's, whistling. There's no-, no, it's like a brutal accounting of something awful that happened to him. And this like really, yes, like beautiful language, but it's like so difficult. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, yes, it should be hard to get through and you should like almost want to just like turn those pages fast just mm-hmm. get me out of here mm-hmm. out of this nightmare chasm um and so like the structure of that section i think mirrors a lot of like what wallace is just like trying to get out yeah. of him so yeah. that he can sort of be done with the telling of it um a- another thing that i've talked about before that i love about this book is that the bodily reactions are so real um, that when you have an emotional reaction, it also affects the body in so many ways. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are one of the things that I love most in fiction is like when the characters have bodies. And sometimes I I read novels where the characters do not have bodies because mm-hmm. um, I I read a lot of novels of consciousness and like sure. just by, like and you know and so much fiction is in first person now and that just like does not lend itself well to the body strangely enough um, and so I I just like really love it when characters have bodies and <laughs> I love the body as a text to sort of scan mm-hmm. um, and so like yeah I was really determined to have this book feel like really concrete and like really embodied so that it's not just like this person's really deep interior thoughts but it's thoughts like married to the physical sensation so that it's not just a thought which can be disregarded you see like the actual kind of physical like visceral impact of a lot of the things that are going on and I think something that's like discounted is that a lot of graduate students especially in STEM fields are really anxious and I think that we have novels of consciousness that deal with anxiety with kind of like the mental side of anxiety but there aren't a lot of like physical accountings of like the tolls that takes on the body Um, and so it just felt really important to me to tell both sides of that story both like the mental aspect and also just like the deeply physical visceral truth of it and and I I do think that like the visceral truth of it is is the real life, mm. Brandon. I mean, I feel like you can't deny someone a body. That feels pretty irrefutably <laughs> real, yeah. Um, tell me about some books that you've been enjoying lately. A book, I mean, this is sort of funny, but I recently invited myself into my friend's like reading of To the Lighthouse. Because um, he kept being like, I'm reading To the Lighthouse. And he would tell me what party was on. And he was like, I love that part. And also that part. <laughs> so I just like invited myself into his reading of it. And so it's like my third or fourth reading of To the Lighthouse. Um, and also really, really loving um, see Pam Zhang's How Much of These Hills is Gold, which comes out in a couple of months, maybe. Excellent. It's so so incredible. Yay. It's amazing. A Western, yes. A Western told in a way that you've never heard a Western told before. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Singular and brilliant, and it's just, ugh, perfect. Brandon, it was such a pleasure. Pleasure's all mine. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Maris Review, and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 